So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Revelation chapter 13. This is part one of a special series called Startling Prophecies for America. America is a nation in crisis. I think we know that. Our world is in crisis. And there's one book in this world that will help us, one major book, which is the Bible, which will help us to understand and unravel and decode what's going on on this planet. And it will show us what's coming in the future, and it will also give us hope. And we need hope, don't we? So thank you for being here. Thank you for having us in Phoenix. Uh, We appreciate the warm weather, and we're looking forward to a great seminar. This is a three-part series. This is part one. We're going to be looking at a beast described in the book of Revelation, which is, uh, I call it beast number one, a beast from the sea. And then there's another beast in Revelation chapter 13. First beast is in Revelation 13, 1, verses 1 to 10. The second beast is in Revelation 13, verse 11. And we'll talk about that tomorrow for part two. And then the last meaning, part three, we're going to talk about how both beasts work together to enforce the mark of the beast. So that's, uh, that's what's ahead of, what is ahead of us. We have quite a journey. So let's pray. Let's thank the Lord that the technology is up and running and that we're here together and that he is, uh, he's on his throne and he's in charge. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege of being here uh, in this location in Phoenix and to be able to share your word with so many people. And we pray for your blessing. We pray for your Holy Spirit. We pray for uh, your guidance and your power. We pray that Jesus will be lifted up and that truth will be very clear. We need to know the truth. And please help me as I lead out tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Part one is called The Beast Identified. You can see a picture of this beast up on the screen. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, says these words. John wrote this and he said, I stood upon the sand of the sea and I saw, and what did he see? He saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads heads the name of blasphemy. If you look at this uh, backdrop behind me, this is the first beast that we're looking at right now in our Bibles, and there's an artist's picture of that beast. Now, what I'm going to share with you... uh, In part one and part two and part three about these beasts is very shocking. I'll just tell you right out of the gate. This is very shocking and controversial information. But I I appeal to you as an audience, and this is what I almost always do when I hold these uh, these meetings on these big topics, is I appeal to people to hear me out and then to check it out from the Bible. Does that sound like a fair request? Hear me out and check it out. And then come to your own conclusions. So here we go. Now, the next picture I'm going to put up here is actually not a picture of a beast. It's a picture of my boy. Picture of my, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Abby's the second one. Or Seth is the second one. The first one is my girl, uh, Abigail. Abigail Rose Wahlberg. Now, she's she's a little bit older now than that picture, but uh, she's such a little sweet, sweet, precious young lady. And there you see a picture of her with a, with a, a bird on her shoulder. 
Uh, my kids and my family, we, lo we love to go to zoos. When we have a chance, we go and look at the animals. The kids love the animals. And so here's the second picture, which is, uh, there's Seth. There's my son. I got the pictures mixed up. <laughs> Abby first and Seth second. Uh, anyway, there he is with a monkey on his back <laughs> at another zoo. Now, we've been to a lot of zoos, and maybe you've been to some zoos, and I'll tell you that if you travel anywhere in the world, and if you go to any zoo on this planet, you'll, you'll see bears and, you know, raccoons and giraffes and lions and tigers and all kinds of animals, animals but you will never see a beast like that one that you see on the screen with seven heads and ten horns, right? You'll never find any zoo that has a creature like that. Uh, it's obvious that this seven-headed, ten-horned creature does... Uh, it's not to be taken literally because it doesn't exist anywhere. But this is a symbol. I call this a sacred symbol described in the book of Revelation. And it's our task to interpret the symbol correctly. So we find out what does this beast mean? You know, who is it or what is it? How can we identify this beast? Now, there's actually quite a few clues in Revelation chapter 13. When you go through the chapter, there are many clues, and we'll just look at these briefly so we can try to figure out who is this beast. Clue number one, it says in verse 5 that there was given to this beast a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. So that's just a, an identifying characteristic of this beast. It is a, um, it's a beast that has a big mouth, says a lot of things, and a lot of the words that come out of its mouth in the sight of God, are blasphemous words. Now, another characteristic of this beast is found in verse 7. It says, the Bible says, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So this beast, whoever or whatever it is, is a persecuting beast. See that? It makes war on what group of people? Saints. It says on the saints, right? War on the saints. And we'll talk more about that in a little while. And it also says at the end of verse 7 that power would be given to this beast over how many people? It says over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So eventually this beast, whoever or whatever it is, is going to have global influence. That's what Revelation chapter 13 verse 7 says. Now verse 8 is very significant. Verse 8 says, all that dwell upon the earth shall someday worship him. All whose names are not written in the book of life of who? Of the lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. And I'll just ask you, who is the lamb in the book of Revelation? Jesus. It's Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus Christ. And, you know, sometimes people study about the beast and the mark of the beast and and they don't think about Jesus. But we need to think about Jesus. We need to think a lot about Jesus. And when you look at the Bible, Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us that the whole world is going to ultimately worship the beast except those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. And that tells us that Jesus is going to have a group of people who do not follow the beast. And ultimately, the battle in Revelation is between the beast and the Lamb. Right? The beast and the lamb. We see that right there in the text. So we need to understand the beast in the light of the lamb. And I'll explain this 
as we go along. Oh, I forgot to push my button. There should be. There we go. Another bullet there against the Lamb. So he has a big mouth, speaks blasphemy, makes war on the saints, has global influence, as, and he is against Jesus Christ. Now, here's another clue. Revelation chapter 13, go back to verse 2. This is a, this is a big clue. Verse 2 says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and he had feet as it were the feet of a bear. His mouth was as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Do you see that? So this, uh, this first beast that we're talking about in chapter 13, verse 1, whoever or whatever it, it symbolizes, we know that it's really a, a composite creature. It's a creature that has a mouth like a lion, feet like a bear, and a body like a leopard. And then there's the dragon who gives him his seat. Do you see that? Now, the reason why this is a big clue is because there is another chapter in the Bible, in the Old Testament. There's one chapter in the Old Testament that specifically talks about a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dragon-like creature with ten horns. And when we go back to that chapter and study that chapter, it gives us more clues. And when we put all the clues together, I'm convinced that we can actually identify who this beast is. Now, who knows what book that one chapter's in in the Old Testament? Who knows? Daniel, right? We've got a lot of great students here. Okay, here's a harder question. What chapter in the book of Daniel talks about these very things? Seven. Wow. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Daniel chapter seven. That's right. So let's, uh, let's turn back to Daniel seven. Daniel's pretty much in the middle of the Bible. If you're not that familiar with the Bible, it's right about in the middle. And if you go to Daniel seven, we're going to read about these very creatures. Daniel chapter seven. Daniel had a dream one night. He was living actually in Babylon. He was a Jewish captive taken to Babylon. It says in verse 1, this was in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, when Daniel had a dream. He had an amazing dream. And his dream is described in this chapter. And in verse 3, in his dream, he says that he saw four great beasts coming up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now remember this, because I'm going to talk about this later on, that these beasts came out of what location? They came out of the sea, right? That is uh, significant. And they were different, one from another. Verse 4, the first one was like what kind, of, what kind of an animal? Like a lion, that's right. And there you can see on the screen, there's a lion with eagle's wings. And the second beast is in verse 5, behold, another beast, a second one, like what kind of an animal? Like a bear, right. And then in verse 6, there's... Another beast, like what kind of an animal? Like a leopard, that's right. And then in verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces. And it stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse or different from all the beasts that were before it. And how many horns did it have? It had ten. Right, so here we can see... We have the four beasts of Daniel 7, the lion, the bear, the leopard-like beast, and the dragon-like beast. 
with 10 horns. Now, the big question is, what is this talking about? What are beasts in prophecy? Do beasts symbolize com computers? Do they symbolize... Uh, well, yeah, we, ha we haven't gotten to that yet. We're going to get to that. <laughs> I, I want to tell you, some people think the beast is, you know, Barack Obama. They thought he was the beast. Or, or maybe Donald Trump. Or, uh, you know, there's all kinds of different opinions of who or what is the beast in the Bible. But my conviction is that God doesn't want me to be uh, like a magician who pulls an interpretation out of a hat and who says, I think the beast is this or that. God doesn't want us doing that. He has actually told us in this chapter what beasts represent. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. We can know for sure. And the answer is in verse 23. In verse 23, an angel comes into Daniel's dream and begins to interpret it. And in verse 23, actually, he started interpreting it earlier. But in verse 23, it says, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth computer upon the earth. Is that right? No. I just want to make sure you are awake. And I know you are. Verse 23 says, the fourth beast is the fourth, and you, you, some of you said it earlier, it's the fourth kingdom. So if the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom or, or nation, then the third beast would be the third what? Kingdom. And the second beast would be the second kingdom. And the first beast would be the first kingdom. Right. It's, it's simple. So God has given us an inspired definition in his word what a beast represents. We know that it is a kingdom. Now, I don't know, is there a Christian bookstore anywhere close to uh, where we are? We're in El Mirage, is that right? Uh, any book, Christian bookstores in El Mirage? No, they closed, too bad. That's not good. Uh, what about in Phoenix? Is there at least a Christian bookstore in Phoenix? I, Phoenix, I would assume so. Uh, anyway, my, my point is that if you go to any Christian bookstore, and if you go into the Bible commentary section, I would say 99%, if not 100% of the commentaries that have been written by many different scholars down throughout Christian history, uh, if you look at those commentaries and you look at Daniel 7, they all agree, just about all of them, that these four beasts in Daniel chapter 7 represent the kingdoms of starting with Babylon because Daniel was in Babylon when he had his dream and actually uh, archaeologists have discovered winged lions among the ruins on the bricks of ancient Babylon. So they found out that winged lions uh, were symbolic of ancient Babylon. And starting with Babylon, we've got Babylon and then Medo-Persia because the Persians conquered the Babylonians. We read that in Daniel chapter uh, 5. And then the Greeks eventually conquered the Persians. And then what nation conquered the Greeks? It was Rome. It actually absorbed the Greek empire. And, and Rome became the most powerful nation of all. It ruled for the longest period of time, and it ruled the widest territory. So Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, this is biblical, and it's basic history that you can confirm in just about any Christian, credible, any credible Christian Bible commentary. Now, let's go farther. We've got the lion, the bear, the leopard, leopard-like beast, and then the dragon-like beast. Uh, Daniel had probably seen some lions and bears and maybe some leopards, but he'd never seen that fourth, that fourth creature. So it's safe to say it's like a dragon. And it has 10 horns, the Bible says. And then go down to verse 8, and then we learn something new. In verse 8, 
we read about another development. Verse 8, verse eight says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another, and what is it that comes up? A little horn, which would be, really be an 11th horn, right? If there's 10 horns, and then there's another little one, this is horn number 11. And if you look at the text, it says that there were three of the first 10 plucked up by the roots when the 11th one came up. And then it says, behold, in this horn, this 11th horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking what? Speaking great things. Now, where have we read about something that has a mouth that speaks great things? Already tonight. Revelation chapter 13, that's right. We read about the beast that also has a mouth speaking great things. We read that in Revelation 13, verse 5. So the first beast that we're going to identify as we go along, that beast has a mouth speaking great things. And in Daniel 7, verse 8, the horn, the little horn has a mouth speaking great things. So there's a parallel. Now, if you go down to verse uh, 21... It tells us that I beheld and the same horn, that little horn, that 11th horn, he made war with what group of people? With the saints, right. And where did we read about that? In Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. Remember, we already read it. That was one of our early clues that the beast makes war on the saints. So if you put these pieces together and there are other parallels, it's very clear and most scholars recognize this. However they interpret the prophecy, they recognize the parallelism that the little horn of Daniel 7 and the first beast of Revelation 13, that these symbols represent the same thing. They represent the same thing. The little horn is the same thing as the beast. It's just a different symbol. The symbols change, but the characteristics are the same. So, if we can put more clues together, we've already looked at some clues in Revelation 13, if we can put more clues together in Daniel 7, and if we can really, you know, we know that the first, that the lion is Babylon, we know that, the bear is Medo-Persia, we know that, the leopard is Greece, we know that, and the reason why it was a leopard is because leopards are very fast, and it was Alexander the Great who quickly conquered the world for Greece. That's why God represented Greece as a leopard, a fast animal. And, and we, we can know that. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and we know that the fourth beast is the, uh, the Roman Empire. We know that. Most scholars know that. There's really not a lot of debate and discussion about that. And I'm convinced that if we keep following the sequence, we can eventually discover who the little horn is as well. And... Let me just make sure you're following me. If we can figure out from Daniel 7 who the little horn is, then what else will we know? Well, that's right. We'll know who the first beast is in Revelation 13 because they're the same. The symbols are different, but it's the same whoever or whatever. We, we can see this when we put together the clues. Now, I'm about to share with you, as quick as I can, eight Bible facts. Most of them are right from Daniel 7. Eight Bible facts about the little horn. And when we're done, 
I'm convinced that we can identify that horn. And thus we'll be able to identify the beast. That eventually the whole world is going to follow except for those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. So I always ask audiences at this point, uh, how many of you are sure you want me to keep going? Because when we identify that little horn, it's going to be very, I'm telling you, it's going to be very controversial. Are you sure you want me to keep going and give you those clues? You're positive. 100%. Okay, let me see your hands. If you really want me to do this. Okay, good. That's great. Now, this is what I always tell people. I say, you know, even if you didn't raise your hand, I was going to keep going anyway. <laughs> I always say that. <laughs> but now I can say that you raised your hand and you gave me permission. So don't blame me for what we find. Don't blame me. Because I didn't write the Bible. These are all facts in, in the word. All right, so are you ready for these eight clues? Here we go. I tell you, this is going to be hot, but we've got to do it. Okay, clue number one is a very uh, obvious clue, and that is the little horn comes out of the head of what nation? Rome, right? We have Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then the ten horns, and then the little horn. So we know, point number one, we know that the little horn is a Roman horn, right? Oh, I think uh, my slides advanced a little bit quicker than I wanted them to. Let me go back. Can I go back a slide? Yes, good. Okay, I see it there. It's, um, I guess my, my monitor here is a little, there's a little lag time, I think. Okay, so there's the little horn, and there's, they're both the same. And there we have the Roman Empire. Okay, now, point number two. If you look back at verse eight, it says that Daniel was considering the horns, which was, were the ten horns on the Roman Empire. And then the little one, it says, there came up among them. Do all your Bibles say among? Do you see the word among them? So the little horn is not only a Roman horn, but it comes up among the ten horns. And that gives us a location of where to look for this little horn. Now, let me... Okay, now I'll go to my next slide. I'm not controlling that. Okay. All right, got it. Okay, you're following my lead. All right, here we have... Uh, wait a minute... I need to go back to my chart. There it is. Ten divisions of the Roman Empire. If you study history, it's a fact, a fact of history, that just as Babylon was followed by Persia, Persia by Greece, and Greece by Rome, that Rome, the Roman Empire, eventually fell apart. And it fell apart because it was invaded by uh, tribal groups from northern the northern parts of Europe and Germany. And these groups came down into Europe and they basically weakened, and then they divided up the Roman Empire. And there you can see on the screen uh, the date, the classic date for the fall of Rome was 476 AD. Just like 1776 is a classic date uh, in American history. And there's, you know, dates that we have, we can just pinpoint. So the date of 476 AD, if you look up the, in the history books, that was the date when the imperial government of Rome inside the city of Rome collapsed because of these invasions. That was the end of 
the Roman Empire as it was for so many hundreds of years. Now, we know point number two is that the little horn comes up among the ten. There were, there were many different tribes, but there were ten primary ones that settled in Europe. And maybe you recognize some of these names, like the Anglo-Saxons became, they became the British, and the Franks became the French, uh, the Visigoths became the Spanish, the Suevi became the Portuguese, the Alemanni came down uh, into Germany, right? The Lombards came down into Italy, the Italians, and these different groups, the Vandals settled in North Africa. And so there were 10 primary groups represented in Daniel chapter 7 by the 10 horns. The Roman Empire collapsed and Europe was divided among these 10. Now we know... So point number two is that the little horn rises up among the ten. So where do we expect to find him? Do we expect to find the little horn in China? No. Do we expect to find the little horn uh, in Australia? No. How about Canada? No. no. We expect to find the, the little horn growing up in Western Europe. Because that's where the ten horns divided up the Roman Empire. So Western Europe, that's point number two. Point number three is back in Daniel 7, verse 8. It says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. So, and I'll explain this more as we go along, that uh, point number three is that the 11th horn is little. He's small. Remember that. This is a very important prophetic point. He's a little horn. Now, point number four which we have, uh, okay, here I've got my summary slide. We've got point number one, he comes up from the Roman Empire. Point number two, he rises among the ten horns in Europe. Point number three, he's small, he's little. Now, point number four, and we already read this in verse eight, that he uproots three of the first ten. And we saw ten in Europe, but three of those are going to get knocked out. They're going to be uprooted by the 11th horn, the little horn. So that's point number four. Point number five is that, and we already read this, that the little horn has eyes like a man. Remember that? It says at the end of verse eight, he has eyes like, a, the, uh, like the eyes of a man. And then point number six is he has a mouth speaking great things, which parallels Revelation 13, verse 5, about the beast. We already read that. Now, these are clear Bible facts. What you see on the screen, let me see. One, two, three, four, five. And number six, six, and here's another one, seven. And we already read this in Revel or Daniel 7, 21, and Revelation 13, 7. That fact number seven is that he, he's a persecuting uh, horn, just like he's a persecuting beast, and he makes war against the saints. Now, are those clear? Do we find those in the Bible? In Daniel chapter 7, if you study the Bible carefully, study history, these, these, are, these are facts. Remember, I did not write these. I didn't create these. I'm not a magician that's pulling interpretations out of a hat. You know, I'm just looking at what the Bible says, and that's what Daniel 7 says. Facts about the little horn. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now there's one more that we're going to go back to Revelation. This one is back in Revelation chapter 13. And we actually already read this verse, but now it's going to, it's going to shed light on this topic. 
verse 2. Let's go back to Revelation 13. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. He had feet like a feet of a bear and a mouth like a mouth of a lion. And what that means is that this beast takes into itself certain elements from Babylon. The lion, ancient Babylon, is incorporated into this beast. And there, there's things that go back to the Medo-Persian Empire that were absorbed into this beast. And then there are parts of the Greek Empire and Greek philosophy and different things about Greece that were absorbed into this beast. That's why it's a com combination of these different nations and their teachings and their philosophies. But now, notice it says that then at the end of verse 2, the dragon, and if you look at the sequence of Daniel 7, we've got the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the dragon-like beast with ten horns and the little horn. It says the dragon, and that would represent who? It would represent the, the well, the ultimate dragon is the devil. We see that in Revelation chapter 12. But in the light of the sequence of Daniel 7, who was that fourth beast, that dragon-like beast with ten horns? It was Rome. That's right, it was the Roman Empire. And, and the devil certainly worked through the Roman Empire. It was Roman soldiers that crucified Jesus. It was Roman soldiers that nailed his precious hands and his feet to the wood. It was Roman soldiers that put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head that whipped him in the back. So the devil used the Roman Empire in, in a terrible way as he used these other, other nations as well. But anyway, uh, the dragon in the context of Daniel 7 represented the Roman Empire and it says, the, the prophecy says that he would, I guess my pointer doesn't work on that screen, that he would give, the dragon would give to the beast. It says uh, three things, his power and his seat and great authority. That's what the King James says. Some Bibles say throne and great authority. Now, what is this talking about? Notice the word seat. How many of your Bibles have the word seat in it? Okay, uh, quite a few of your Bibles. My, my Bible does. I've got a I'm, I'm, my Bible, the one I'm using here, is called the King James Easy Reader Bible. It's a very interesting Bible. It's a wonderful Bible. Uh, Whitehorse Media has these Bibles. That we make them available to people. And it's basically a King James Bible with a few of the old English words, like the these and the thous, uh, updated into modern language. But it's a basic King James Bible. And many of your Bibles will say that too. The dragon gave him his power and his seat. Seat and great authority. Now, uh, every nation always has a seat of government somewhere. Who knows where the seat of government of, the, of Canada is, the Canadian nation? It's in Ottawa, correct, A+. Plus. Uh, how about uh, Russia? Where's the seat of government in Russia? Moscow, A+. Plus. You got, you got the book of Daniel, you got Daniel 7, and now you got Canada, right? Russia, right? This is real easy. How about America? Where's the seat of government for the United States of America? Somebody say Boise? <laughs> no, not Boise. <laughs> Boise's in Idaho. It's Washington, D.C. 
That's right, Washington, D.C., whatever you think about the government and what's going on over there, that is the seat of government for our, our nation. Now, uh, think about this. Where was the seat of government of the ancient Roman Empire? It was in Rome. That's right, exactly. It was in the city of Rome. City of Rome. And now the, the, the prophecy says that the dragon would give his seat of government to the beast. And what that means is that the beast is going to eventually sit. His seat of government is going to be on the seat of the dragon empire, which is in Rome, the city of Rome. So that is point number eight. Now let me just quickly review these points. See if I've got a review slide here. Yes, I do. We know that the little horn comes up out of the Roman Empire. It's Roman. We know it rises among the ten horns in Europe. We know that. We know it's a little horn. We know it uproots three of the first ten. Point number five, it has eyes like a man. Number six, it has a mouth speaking great things. Point number seven, it makes war against the saints. And point number Eight is its headquarters is going to be in the city of Rome. Now, are you sure you want me to keep going? Remember, I didn't write this. And I want to I clarify something that as we keep going, uh, I want you to know that I'm going to talk about some real things going on in a real organization and real people. And I want you to know that... Um, there's absolutely nothing personal in any of this. That I'm not judging people because only God is the judge. It's not up to me to do that. Uh, nothing personal against anybody. And I believe that God loves everybody. I really do. He loves everybody. And Jesus died on the cross for everybody. But I also believe God wants us to know the truth. And that's why he gave us this prophecy. These prophecies is to help us to understand Bible truth. So, are you ready? Yes. All right, now actually I'm going to give you one more slide before I uh, have you put all your seatbelts on. There's two texts I want to put on the screen here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men and who is that one mediator? Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. That's right. Now, I never was really good at math. I didn't really like math in school. Uh, but I know what the word one means. <laughs> that there's one go-between between God the Father and fallen humanity. And that one is Jesus Christ. The man, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. Now, second point I want to bring up is how are, we, how are we saved? In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, there was a man that asked Paul, how, how can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? And Paul's response was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I, I believe that with all my heart. I believe both these verses, that we are not saved by works. We're not saved by being good enough. 
We are saved through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what God's book says. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because as we are going to see in just a little bit, the beast described, actually the little horn and the beast of Revelation 13, really, when you really study this out, it does not believe in those two points. It does not believe that there's only one mediator, which is Jesus Christ. It does not believe that in order to be saved, we need to believe directly in Jesus. The little horn and the beast, they, they didn't, it denies this. And this is why it's so dangerous. That's why it's a beast. That's why it's a horn. With a mouth speaking great things because it denies the fundamental truths of the Bible. Now remember, nothing personal. God is the judge. God loves everybody. Have I made that clear? All right. So now I'm going I'm to go on. And, and before, actually, before I push this button, if I just you know, look at my audience, and this happens almost all the time, how many of you can tell where I'm going with this? You know, yeah, hands come up, people are nodding, and I see this every time. I don't even have to make the application. All you have to do is look at the evidence. When you look at the evidence in your Bibles and you look at history, what happens is people then, they put the pieces together and they figure it out. Even before I say it, this happens over and over and over and over again. So here we go. Put your seatbelts on and this is, uh, this is it. It is a fact that tonight, sitting upon the seat of the ancient Roman Empire, where its headquarters used to be, is the, is the headquarters of the worldwide kingdom of the Roman Catholic Church. That is a fact. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church is actually a kingdom. It's not just a church. It is a kingdom, and that is very easy to prove. Uh, when Pope Francis first was uh, chosen as Pope, this is a, a little picture here from Wikipedia that says that he is the head of state. And it says, Pope Francis is Pope of the Catholic Church, a title he holds ex officio for being the Bishop of Rome, in which capacity he is also the absolute sovereign of the Vatican City State. Uh, the Roman church is actually a combination of church and state. And the Pope is not just a, a religious leader, but he's the sovereign over the Vatican city state. He is a ruler. It is a kingdom. Now, here's another question. Who knows what is the smallest country in the world? It's the Vatican. That's right. Now, here's a... Uh, another quote, if you, if you Google this, you can find this. Uh, what is the smallest country in the world? From Yahoo Answers, it's Vatican City, 0.2 square miles. It is the world's smallest state. The Vatican has a population of 770 people, none of whom are permanent residents. This tiny country, which surrounds St. Peter's Basilica, is the spiritual center for the world's Roman Catholics, over 1 billion strong. Also known as the Holy See, Vatican City is surrounded by Rome. So, and what did we read in the prophecy about the little horn? It would be very little, right? 
It's a small horn. And the Vatican is the smallest country in the world. Now, uh, I want to also clarify that as we go into this prophecy and talk about this, I don't believe that God is talking about Catholic people, individual Catholic people. I believe there's going to be a whole lot of Catholics in the kingdom. I really do. Lots of Catholics are going to be in heaven. There's godly Catholics all over the world. And I believe a lot of them are going to be with Jesus in his kingdom forever. So I'm not talking about the godly Catholic people in this world. I'm talking about the system, the system that fits the prophecy. That's what I'm talking about. And so please, please uh, believe me and uh, look at it in that, from that perspective. Now, let's just briefly do a, a history lesson and let's see if the facts, his, if, let's see if the facts all fit together. As I mentioned, uh, when Jesus came into this world, he came down here and he died for the sins of how many people? For the sins of everybody as the Lamb of God. He died, he was buried, he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven, and he is the only mediator between God and men. It's Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that we can believe in Jesus, and that's how we're saved. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, which is the Heavenly Father, except through him. And these are just fundamental, basic Bible truths. And, and again, I want to stress that Jesus loves everybody. He loves every Catholic, every Protestant, every Jew, every Muslim. He loves all the Democrats and all the Republicans. He loves all the candidates, you know, that are trying to become president. He loves President Trump, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, whichever side of the political fence you lean on, the reality is Jesus loves everyone. He died for everyone. And that includes uh, Pope Francis. Jesus loves Pope Francis. We should pray for this man, that the Holy Spirit will work in his heart. Anyway, um, these are basic Bible truths. And when Jesus died and then rose from the dead and went to heaven, and the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples, the, the disciples then spread out like a, an unstoppable wave in the Roman world because they knew that Jesus was the Son of God. They saw him after he had been raised from the dead. They watched him go up into heaven. The New Testament is largely written by, written by eyewitnesses. And their testimony, if you did a you know, court trial and look at all the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the evidence is overwhelming. People saw him. Hundreds of people saw him. And when he went to heaven and the Holy Spirit came down, the disciples of Jesus were filled with a love and a passion to share the message of Christ that could not be stopped. And they fanned out all over the Roman world. And they taught people that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only mediator. And if you want to be saved, you need to lock your faith on him. That's what they taught. That's what they taught. And the reality is that a lot of people accepted their preaching, but a lot of people opposed them. Uh, they were fiercely opposed by many in the Roman population and by many of the Caesars. 
And, you know, the Caesars wouldn't mind if they believed in Jesus. That's not a problem. But the problem is that they believed only in Jesus and they wouldn't worship Caesar. That was the problem. And so the Roman Empire reacted because people worship Caesar in the Roman Empire and the Christians couldn't do that. And so as uh, the truth spread, the Christians were fiercely opposed. They were gathered up many times and thrown into this building, which is the Roman Colosseum. These are the ruins of the Roman Colosseum. And in that Colosseum, I don't know the number, probably hundreds, thousands of them were brutally butchered. They were torn apart by wild dogs and wild lions and they were the entertainment of the Roman Empire as they were being torn to pieces because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But you know what? The Christians were willing to do anything for their Lord. They loved Jesus so much. They loved the Lamb of God who died on the cross for their sins, who loves everybody, who rose from the dead, who went to heaven, and who is coming back again, that these Christians were unstoppable. Nothing would steer them away from Jesus. They were willing to die for their faith, one by one. And the, and the persecutions, terrible persecutions, happened in the first century, second century, third century. In the fourth century and in the fifth century, the, the tribes, the barbarian tribal people from the north, they swept down into the empire. And I believe that one of the reasons why God allowed these nations to sweep down and weaken and eventually conquer the Roman Empire so that it, so that it went down was because the Roman Empire had not only murdered Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but they murdered his children. And, and when an empire turns against the Christians... It's only a matter of time until it goes down. It's a big lesson for us in America and other countries uh, as we think about these lessons. Well, in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries, the barbarians swept in. They invade, invaded Europe. And eventually, in 476 AD, the imperial government collapsed. Now, it's interesting that as Christianity spread out and as the Roman Empire began to fall apart, Christian churches were planted all over, the, all, all over the empire. And there was one particular church that was planted right inside the city of Rome. And Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, wrote a letter to that church. You know the name of that letter? The book of Romans. When you read the book of Romans, it was Paul's letter to the early Christian church that was growing in the city of Rome. And history tells us that what happened was, as the empire began to collapse, the church in Rome, in the heart of the empire, began to, or it, it continued to grow in power. So when the empire collapsed, the church did not collapse. And it became more and more political, especially in the days of Constantine and beyond. And eventually, the church of Rome became the Roman Catholic Church. Right there in the heart of the empire, on the seat of the ancient Roman Empire, as the political power collapsed. Now let's look at the facts here. Point number one, the Roman Catholic Church system 
He is Roman, Roman Catholic Church. And that fulfills point number one of the prophecy in Daniel 7. Point number two, it rose up among the ten horns in Western Europe. And that fulfills point number two. Point number three, it's very little. As we mentioned, uh, Vatican, as I mentioned, Vatican city-state is the smallest country in the world. And that fulfills point number three. There were three of the ten horns that were established in different parts of, the, uh, of Western Europe. They resisted the growing power, the growing political power of the Roman church. They resisted it. And one by one, they were eliminated through the influence of the Roman church. And here you see the different ones. The Vandals were uprooted in 534 AD. The Heruli in Italy were uprooted in 493 AD. And the Ostrogoths who came down into Italy, took over the city of Rome itself, uh, they were uprooted in 538 AD. Three powers. And if you go to Europe today and travel around, there are no people that you can meet in Europe that can trace their roots back to the Vandals, the Heruli, and the Ostrogoths. Those three horns are gone. And they were all uprooted through the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. That's a fact of history. I've done a lot of study in history. And that fulfills point number four. Point number five, the prophecy says that it would have eyes like the eyes of a man. And it's, it's a fact that as time went on, a man was appointed to be the head of the Roman Catholic Church. And he was given a unique title that has never been given to any other religious leader. And the title is the Papa or the Pope. The Pope. Eyes like a man, that there would be a man and the influence of a man at the head of this horn. Eyes like a man. That fulfilled point number five. Now, point number six is that it would also have a mouth. A mouth speaking great things. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. And this is a fact of history that this man in the office of Pope was eventually given by the church so much power and authority that it was claimed that he was the representative of God on earth. And he was given spiritual, or at least the claim was made, that he had spiritual and temporal supreme authority, which is authority over religious matters and over civil matters as well, over the state and over states and over kings all over Europe and all over the world. The claim is that the Pope is above them all. And that is a mouth speaking great things, fulfilling point number six. Now, eventually the Pope, as you go down the stream of history, the Popes decided that if you didn't believe in the authority of the Pope and submit to the authority of the Pope and believe that he was God's agent upon the earth, if you were not willing to do that, then you could not be saved. And you would not go to heaven. You would be lost. That was uh, the decision that they came to. And, 
And, and there were millions, I don't, we don't know the exact number, but millions of Christians whose consciences told them, we can't do this. Because they read their Bibles. And they knew that there was how many mediators? Only one. And who is that one? It's Jesus. And how are they to be saved? Through believing in Jesus Christ. That's right. And so they had a conflict of conscience. And the conflict was the Pope or Jesus. They had to make a decision. Is he the man or is Jesus the man? Am I, am I saved through submitting to the Pope or am I saved through submitting and believing in Jesus Christ? And there was a conscience issue. And a whole lot of Christians said, we just can't go along with this. We believe the Bible above the Pope. And as a result of that decision, what happens is, what happened was there were millions uh, some historians say 50 to 100 million who were eventually... Oh, what happened? I'm, okay, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. What happened? I guess I'm looking at my screen here and I need to be looking at that. Okay, there we go. There's the text. The same horn made war against the saints. And he overcame them. Uh, the Inquisition was set up which was called, amazingly, the Holy Office of the Inquisition. And it put to death 50 to 100 million believers in Jesus who died for their faith. And that's a fact of history. And that fulfilled point number seven, exactly as the prophecy says. And as we've already seen, the seat of government of the Roman Catholic Church is where? It's in Rome exactly as God's prophecy predicted that the dragon, the fourth beast, would give him his power and his seat and great authority. And that perfectly fulfilled point number eight. Now, I'm getting down near the end of this talk. And let me, uh, let me ask you another quiz question. Who do you think is the most popular person right now on planet Earth, who has more influence than any other human being alive. You think it's Mick Jagger? How about Oprah? No. How about uh, President Trump? No. Whether you love him or hate him, he does not have more influence than Pope Francis. Pope Francis is the man who has more influence and more power than anybody else. This is a picture with just a collage of him, him meeting with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, meeting with President Trump, uh, speaking at the United Nations, Man of the Year, Time Magazine, meeting with Jewish leaders, with uh, Muslim leaders, and also with evangelical Protestant leaders. Uh, and, and just, you know, it's just a fact. Uh, he, he spends time and he speaks with people all over the world, and there's nobody that can gather a bigger crowd than Pope Francis. And again, I'm not judging people. I don't want to judge him. I pray for this man. I really do. I've got nothing against him personally, but I'm looking at the prophecy, and everything fits together. And you remember we read in Revelation 13:8 that eventually all the world will follow the beast, except for those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. 
except those who are willing to follow Jesus more than anybody else and to follow, to follow the Bible. Now, let me show you a quotation that is very, very significant. And yeah, I'm going to, you're, I know, um, they said, just don't worry about it. I'm going to stick as well as I can to the time. Here's an article in the, uh, in the National Catholic Reporter, which is a Catholic publication, June 25, 2014. It says, church is essential for faith. There are no free agents, the Pope says. This came out of Vatican City. This is a Catholic publication. And it says, notice this, Christians are not made in a laboratory, but in a community called the church, Pope Francis said. Pope Francis described as dangerous the temptation to believe that one can have a personal, direct, immediate relationship with Jesus Christ without communion with and the mediation of the church. That's what Pope Francis said. Now, I know he's very sincere in what he believes. But is, it, is that true? Is it dangerous for you or for me to have a direct, personal relationship with Jesus Christ without going through the mediation of the church? Now, now, now you know, Pope Francis says that's dangerous. But I, my response is his teaching is dangerous. It's dangerous. This teaching goes against the Lamb. This teaching goes against the idea there's only one mediator and it's Jesus Christ and I'm saved through my faith in Him. Almost 40 years ago, I got on my knees when I was 20 years old and I confessed my sins and I asked Jesus to come into my heart to forgive my sins and to change my life. And I did it, I did it alone in a dormitory room in Southern California. And did Jesus hear that prayer? He surely did. He forgave my sins and he changed my life. And now I'm happily married with two children. Praise the Lord. It's because of Jesus. And, and uh, you know, so I'll just, I respectfully say that Pope Francis is wrong. And his teaching is dangerous because it leads away from simple, direct faith in Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what the Bible says. I'm convinced that we are living in the final hours of this world's history. I'm convinced that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. It's happening and so many people don't see it because they're not, they're not studying. Like the man I met, uh, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, I met a man in a, in a hot tub earlier today and he said, isn't the book of Revelation the last book of the Bible? It's, and I don't think he'd ever read it. And most people don't read it. They don't read Daniel 7. They don't read Revelation 13. And they don't put together the clues. And they, so they don't understand. And God wants them to understand. Not because he's trying, not because he, you know, God's not committing a hate crime by giving us Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. He's doing this because he loves us. Because Jesus died for us and paid the price for all of us. And he wants to teach us repentance and simple faith in him. That's why God gives us this prophecy, because he loves us and he wants to save our souls by his grace and by his kindness that was revealed on the cross. We are living right down at the end of history. I'm convinced. And what we're going to be doing tomorrow as we continue with part two and part three is we are going to be looking at the big issues. Part two at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning 
is called America in Bible Prophecy. We're going to look at the second beast. Tonight we've identified the first beast, and then we'll look at the second beast. And we'll see whether America has anything to do with this. And then our third meeting at 4 o'clock is called the Mark of the Beast. And we'll see how both the first beast and the second beast work together to enforce the Mark of the Beast. But we're also going to see how God is going to have a people in the midst of all of this who don't bow down, who believe in Jesus like the early Christians. And no matter what happens, they are, they're going to give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ above any man, above any teachings that contradict the Bible. The last verse we'll look at tonight, and then we'll have prayer. And I'll tell you just a quick story. It's uh, Revelation 14, verse 4. Revelation 14, verse 4. And the verse is on the screen, or at least part of it. Right after chapter 13, talks about the first beast, the second beast, and the mark of the beast. In the middle of chapter 14, verse 4, it describes another group of people. It says, these are they which follow the Lamb. Wherever he goes, wherever Jesus goes, God's going to have a people who follow him. Are you with me? Do you want to be among that people? The people that follow Jesus? I really do. Uh, I'll close with a little story. When my son Seth, our son Seth, was about four years old, we had just moved up into uh, eastern Washington from California. And that first winter in 2000, I believe it was uh, 2008, there was so much snow we couldn't believe it. And the snow was just everywhere. And uh, I, I found a little sled and a rope. And I decided, I said, hey, Seth, want to go for a, a little sleigh ride around the neighborhood? And he was just wanted to do that. He said, yeah, Dad, let's go. So he sat in this little sled, and I had the rope, and I pulled him around the neighborhood uh, on these snowy streets, and he was just having a blast. You know, a little four-year-old was just zipping away, and he was, couldn't be happier. And at one point, he said something to me that I just was amazed. He saw the big, uh, the big piles of snow on the side of the road because the snow plows, you know, pile up the snow, and he, uh, you don't know about that in Phoenix, do you? <laughs> Probably many of you are. How many of you are snowbirds? Okay, admit it. <laughs> Coming from the snow country to come down here and enjoy the warm weather. Uh, anyway, he saw these big mounds of snow. And he said to me, he said, Dad, he said, if I were to climb up onto one of these mounds of snow and if I were to fall in and go down under the snow, he said, he said you, would, you would probably just leave me there, right? And I just, well, you know, sometimes the funniest things come out of kids' mouths. And I just uh, said right away, I said, of course not, Seth. Uh, I wouldn't leave you. I'd dig you out. And then he said, he said, but Daddy, he said, what if you didn't have a shovel? And then I told him, I said, I said, Seth, no problem. No problem. I said, I would, I would dig you out with my bare hands. If you go down in that snow, I'm going to get you. And as I, before we pray, I want to say to you that 2,000 years ago on the cross, essentially, Jesus gave his life for all your sins so he could dig you out with his hands. His nail 
pierced, bleeding hands. He did it for you and he did it for me. And he'll do anything and everything to save us, to forgive us, to change us, and to get us ready for heaven. And we need to be captured by his love and put him first above everybody else. And if we do, we'll never be sorry. We'll never be sorry. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Savior, we come to you at the beginning, or I'm sorry, at the end of uh, part one of this weekend. And Lord, our, our hearts have been touched by the goodness of the Lamb. And we've read about the beast. We've read about what's going to be happening around the world, what has happened in history, and what we've read a little bit about what's coming. And I just pray for everybody here and everybody that will watch this, that you will bless them, that you will help us all to realize that Jesus is our Savior and that we must choose to follow the Lamb above all. Lord, please bless us and bring us back tomorrow to uh, look at part two and then part three as we go deep into prophecy to understand what is happening in these last days. Bless us all, we pray. In Jesus' loving name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message by Steve Wolberg. We feel privileged to be a part of God's commission to share the gospel with the world. You too can be a part of our gospel outreach team by supporting messages just like these with your financial gifts. We strive to be careful with every dollar that we receive, knowing these donations are sacred gifts to build up God's kingdom of grace and salvation. To find other great resources or to donate online, go to whitehorsemedia.com or you can call us at 1-800-78-BIBLE. That's 1-800-782-4253. You can follow us on Twitter at Whitehorse7 or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Steve Wolberg. That's Steve, W-O-H-L-B-E-R-G. If you prefer to contact us by mail, write to Whitehorse Media, P.O. Box 130, Priest River, Idaho, 83856. Thanks for your support, and may God richly bless your day.